Good morning, church. It's good to see each one of you here today on this very cold Indiana morning, um, very brisk morning. Most of us have enjoyed great blessing at some point or another in our lives, either through hard work, benevolence, or business. When it's due to business, there's typically an agreement we have called a contract, a lease, or some type of covenant spelling out the rights and the responsibilities of each party. Typically, the terms of the contract dictate that in exchange for the right to engage in a certain activity or benefit from the property of another in some way, we bear some obligation to the owner. Sometimes this can be some monetary arrangement. I remember in college it was often borrowing someone's vehicle in exchange for putting some gas in it. Whatever the arrangement, there's, there are typically terms and conditions that restrict our use of the land and failure to fulfill an obligation in the agreement will often result in our eviction from the property or prohibition on using the land in the future. In some cases, the consequences can be more dire than that. In the town of Hamlin, Germany, there's a plaque on a building in the town dating sometime before the early 1600s that reads as simply as follows. A.D. 1284, on the 26th of June, the day of St. John and St. Paul, 130 children born in Hamlin were led out of the town by a piper wearing multicolored clothes. After passing the Calvary near Copenburg, they disappeared forever. A brief but darker entry exists in the Hamlin town records dating back to 1384. It is 100 years since our children left. Suggesting that whatever happened left an indelible mark on the collective memory of the town to serve as a warning. If this sounds familiar to you, then you know your Grimm's fairy tales. Except that this plaque predates the Grimm brothers by at least 200 years. The town of Hamlin had been overrun by rats. A piper offered to clear the rats out in exchange for a fee. So they hired the piper to rid the town of rats in for his fee. When the piper returned to collect his fee from the town, the townsfolk reneged on the payment. In response to his failure to be paid for his work and the comfort that he offered the townsfolk, he stole the town's children, never to be heard from again. The moral of the story was to pay the piper, lest something valuable to you be lost. Now, it's an extreme story, but it illustrates a point. We come to today's text of Scripture. God's covenant with Israel is full of promises and obligations. Blessings for obedience, curses for disobedience. Beginning in Exodus 20, the Lord hands down the covenant to Moses for the nation of Israel. In verse 12 of that chapter, he commands Israel, Honor your father and mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. As Paul reminds us, it's the first command with a promise. After these ten commandments, the Lord gives laws regarding slaves, altars, restitution, the Sabbaths, and festivals. We come to chapter 23, 20 of Exodus, and the Lord sends his angel to guard his people to bring them into the promised land. But this protection comes with an obligation. 
in verse 21, pay careful attention to him and obey his voice. Do not rebel against him, for he will not pardon your transgression. For my name is in him. But if you carefully obey his voice and do all that I say, that I will be an enemy to your enemies and an adversary to your adversary. Curses for disobedience, blessings for obedience. In 24, chapter 24 of Exodus, the covenant is confirmed with the nation. The commands and obligations were read to the people and they responded in this way. All the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And again in verse 7 of that chapter, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. We will be obedient. After this, the priests and the elders ascended the mountain with Moses and saw the God of Israel. And the covenant was confirmed with them in the presence of God when they, quote, they beheld God and ate and drank. Later on in the law, in Leviticus 21 and 22, the Lord lays down his law for priests. Priests were to be holy. They were to be blameless. They were to ensure the holiness of the people of Israel. They were to ensure the right worship of God and ensure the right keeping of the festivals and the sacrifices. They were to ensure that the people of God were set apart. They were holy. But then in Numbers chapter 25, as Israel was wont to do, they had broken the covenant and had worshipped idols, and the wrath of God was stirred up against them. And he brought a plague against the people for their idolatry. In this, they found a man of Israel who had lain with a Midianite woman, and they brought her and him in front of the assembly. Phinehas, the grandson of Aaron, the high priest, was so incensed at such a violation of God's covenant by the people that he stood up from the midst of the assembly, took a spear, and impaled them both in front of the people. We think, such, such a crime can't, you know, he murdered someone in the assembly, except the Lord had this to say to Moses about Phinehas. In chapter 25, 11, Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, son of Aaron, the high priest, has turned back my wrath from the people of Israel, and that he was jealous with my jealousy among them, so that I did not consume the people of Israel in my jealousy. Therefore say, behold, I give to him my covenant of peace, and it shall be to him and his descendants after him the covenant of a perpetual priesthood, because he was jealous for his God and made atonement for the people of Israel. The priests were entrusted with holiness. They were entrusted with ensuring that Israel was a holy nation set apart for God. They were given specific instruction and specific example of what this was to be. They were to be zealous for God. This was also that Israel would realize and enjoy the promise that God had made with Abraham in Genesis 22 that your offspring shall, that in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. 
And we see this beautiful picture and the type of blessing that Israel was supposed to be to the nations elaborated in Isaiah 56. That my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the peoples. Before we jump into today's text, let's briefly review where we were last week in Mark 11, 27 through 33. Because today's text is really a continuation of the confrontation that Jesus had with the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders. As Ken discussed last week, these three groups of people comprise the Sanhedrin, the religious and civil authority of Israel. A point of detail that will come to bear into today's text is there were two classes of Sanhedrin. The lesser Sanhedrin was basically a local body of judges appointed to sit in each city. There were many lesser Sanhedrin. But there was only one great Sanhedrin. The body of 71 judges that sat in Jerusalem in the temple. That acted as a sort of supreme court. Their decisions in civil and religious matters were final. They met in a dedicated chamber in the temple called the Hall of Hewn Stones until the destruction of the temple. This was the body being addressed by Jesus in Mark 11, 27 through 33, and in today's text. In last week's text, the members of the Sanhedrin directly questioned Jesus' authority to do these things. That these things to which they're referring may refer to the broader context of Jesus' teaching, healing, and casting out demons, but I believe there's a more proximal context. See, just 24 hours prior, Jesus had cleansed the temple and rebuked the Sanhedrin, saying this in 11.17, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. The Sanhedrin had been rebuked for their utter failure to fulfill their obligation to ensure the holiness and right worship of the people. How badly had they failed, you might ask? If we continue with the passage from Isaiah 56 that Jesus had quoted, we see a description of the leaders of Israel of Isaiah's day that Jesus is bringing to bear on the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders of his day. In Isaiah 56.9 and following, the Lord has this to say about the men entrusted to lead and protect Israel. All you beasts of the field come to devour. All you beasts of the forest. His watchmen are blind. They are all without knowledge. They are all silent dogs. They cannot bark. Dreaming, lying down, loving to slumber. The dogs have a mighty appetite. They never have enough. But they are shepherds who have no understanding. They have all turned to their own way, each to his own gain, one and all. Come, they say, let me get wine. Let us fill ourselves with strong drink, and tomorrow will be like this day great beyond measure. Rather than watchful, the leaders of Israel had be, have become blind. Rather than protective, they have become as useless as a dog that will not bark. 
rather than knowing they have become as one without understanding. Rather than humble servants of God, they have become greedy. Rather than just, they have become predatory, turning on their own. The prophet Micah, when he had proclaimed the Lord's indictment of his people, prophesied this in 6.8. He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God? The leaders of Israel had failed in every conceivable way. In the midst of their utter and complete failure, they questioned Jesus' authority to question their failure. In their attack on Jesus, they do not deny their failure. Rather, they only question Jesus' authority to rebuke their failure, to question their authority. Like what we saw earlier in the book of Mark in chapter 3 when the scribes claimed that Jesus is actually an agent of Satan and counters he counters that it's not he, but they who are acting in concert with Satan. Here, after they challenged his authority, he proceeded to show that it is actually they who have no authority. Having outwitted the priests on their charge, challenged to his authority, Jesus now goes on the offensive, challenging their authority and the leaders of Israel through his declaration of God's precept, his patience, and his punishment. Let's turn now to our text in Mark chapter 12, 1 through 12. And he began to speak to them, the he being Jesus and them being the continued Sanhedrin. He began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the wine press and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get, from some, to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent to them another servant. And they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another and him they killed, and so with many others. Some they beat, and some they killed. He had still one other, a beloved son. Finally he sent to them, finally he sent him to them, saying, They will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come. Let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And they were seeking to arrest him, but feared 
the people. For they perceived that he had told the parable against them. So they left him and went away. The third day of the Passion Week began as the second. The previous day, Jesus had confronted the chief priests and the scribes' greed in the temple as he cleansed it. On the third day, once again, the chief priests and the scribes begin their challenges to Jesus, this time with the elders of Israel in tow. Once Jesus deftly puts aside their challenge to his authority, he begins to speak to them in parables. Now, the only parable recorded in Mark is this, ex- in, is this exchange, today's parable, the parable of the tenants. Now, in the parallel passages in Matthew, Matthew records two additional parables, the parable of the two sons and the parable of the wedding feast. Immediately, immediately in today's text, Jesus references the prophet Isaiah, this time with the song of the vineyard, beginning in Isaiah 5.1, which reads, Let me sing a song for my beloved, my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it. And he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. As in Isaiah's text that Jesus references, we see that the man in Jesus' parable invested a great deal of time and energy and expense. He took great care to protect the vineyard and great time and expense to improve it so that it could be useful and fruitful. But before we go any further, a note on the symbolism in today's text. We must be careful to not over-allegorize texts of Scripture. In fact, we shouldn't allegorize texts of Scripture except when the text of Scripture tells us it is allegory, as is the case here. Further in Isaiah 5, the text that Jesus references, we're told explicitly in 5.7, For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. We're told clearly the vineyard represents the nation of Israel and the man represents the Lord. There are other allegorical figures present in this text, and we'll address these as they arise. We see that the man, after he prepared, protected, and planted the vineyard, leased it out to tenants. Another allegorical figure, the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders, in order for them to tend it and to care for it so that it would produce fruit. Jesus' parable of the vineyard assumes the social and economic background of the day in which large estates were often leased out by absentee landlords to tenants who actually worked the land and were obligated to pay the landlord a portion of the produce or profits as a rent for the land he provided them. If the vineyard is Israel, based on what was revealed in God's covenant with his people, who were the ones left in charge to ensure that the nation of Israel bore the fruit that God intended? The priests, 
Eventually, when the season came for harvesting, the man sent a servant to collect some of the fruit of the, from the vineyard as agreed upon, as the agreed upon portion. Sure, the tenants owed a rent. That makes sense. But we should not forget what time of the year this was in the Jewish festival calendar. At this particular time in the Jewish calendar, three feasts were about to occur in very rapid succession. Passover was three days off. After the Passover followed the seven-day feast of unleavened bread. One day later, the feast of the first fruits was observed. The feast of the first fruits, as laid down in Leviticus 23, 9-14, was a time in which the whole of Israel gave thanks to the Lord for the harvest. They were to bring the first sheaves of grain as an offering to the Lord in recognition that the entirety of the harvest belongs to the Lord, graciously bestowed on his people as a blessing. Israel was not permitted to eat on that day until the sacrifice had been made. And it was, a, it was to be a statute forever, as the Lord declared. A sacrifice of grain, a lamb, food and wine was required as a recognition that all provision comes from the Lord, graciously bestowed. Surely this must have been on the minds of the religious leaders, just as the Lord demands his rightful share, the first fruits, so the owner demands his rightful due. And this leads us to our first point, that God demands fruitfulness. This is nothing new in Jesus' teaching in Mark. We see so many reference to fruitfulness, the parable of the sower in Mark 4, the parable of the seed growing also in Mark 4 the parable of the mustard seed in Mark 4, the fig tree in Mark 11, and now in chapter 12. If you haven't figured it out yet, the man is an allegorical figure for God. God demands that the field produce a harvest, and those that he entrusted, and that those he entrusted to do, or do all they are commanded to produce that harvest. But not only do we see that God demands fruitfulness, God demands honor. The man is the rightful owner of the vineyard and is the rightful owner of all the vineyard produces. His land produced the harvest. It is his. In his, graf in his gracious provision, he's leased it out to others to work. His only demand is the first fruit of the harvest, his rightful share. It was incumbent on the tenants to honor him thusly. If they do so, they will continue to live at peace with the owner. If they do not do so, they will incur his wrath. And that should be the end of it. The owner sent a servant, endowed with his own authority, to collect his rightful due. You can all go home now. Except that wasn't the end of it. Not by a mile. In fact, it was just the beginning. Verse 3 begins a violent cycle of the tenants rejecting the servants with an escalating cycle of violence from beating a servant and sending him away empty-handed to striking another on the head and denigrating him to outright murder. Murder. 
And so it continued. Some they beat and some they killed. Here again is another allegorical figure. The servants are the prophets of Israel sent by God to warn his people to repent and return to him and keep the covenant so as to avoid the devastating consequences of disobedience that God outlined in Leviticus 26, 14 through 39. For the sake of time, I will not read that text in its entirety, only parts for us to understand the devastation the prophets were trying to spare them from. Beginning in verse 14, the Lord says, But if you will not listen to me and will not do all these commandments, if you spurn my statutes and if your soul abhors my rules, so that you will not do all my commandments but break my covenant, I will do this to you. I will visit you with panic, with wasting, disease, and fever. I will set my face against you and you shall be struck down before your enemies." Then in 21, if you walk contrary to me and will not listen to me, I will continue striking you sevenfold for your sins. And if by this discipline you are not turned to me but walk contrary to me, then I also will walk contrary to you and I myself will strike you sevenfold for your sins. And I will bring a sword upon you that shall execute vengeance for the covenant." And further in 27, but if in spite of this you will not listen to me but walk contrary to me, then I will walk contrary to you in fury, and I myself will discipline you sevenfold for your sins, and I will scatter you among the nations, and I will unsheath the sword after you, and you and your land shall be laid a desolation, and your cities shall be waste. Then the land shall enjoy its Sabbaths. How many times did the prophets of Israel urge the nation to repent? At the end of the Lord's promise of sure destruction for disobedience, however, he ends with a beautiful promise, beginning in verse 40, that if they repented, he would remember his covenant and restore them. But if they confess their iniquity and the iniquity of their fathers and their treachery that they committed against me and also in walking contrary to me so that I walked contrary to them and brought them into the land of their enemies, if then their uncircumcised heart is humbled and they make amends for their iniquity, then I will remember my covenant with Jacob and I will remember my covenant with Isaac and my covenant with Abraham and I will remember the land. But the land shall be abandoned by them and enjoy its Sabbaths while it lies desolate without them, and they shall make amends for their iniquity because they spurned my rules and my, their soul abhorred my statutes. Yet for all that, when they are in the land of their enemies, I will not spurn them. Neither will I abhor them so as to destroy them and utterly break my covenant with them, for I am the Lord their God." But I will, for their sake, remember the covenant with their forefathers, whom I brought out of the land of Egypt in the sight of the nations, that I might be their God. I am the Lord. Yet rather than repentance, time and time again, Israel chose to murder the messenger, 
than heed the message. So that in Matthew 23, Jesus pronounces on the scribes and Pharisees the guilt for the blood of all the righteous, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. How many prophets did they persecute and murder? Here is what I am sure is not a comprehensive list. I preface this with some of these are referenced in the Old Testament, while some of these are from early Jewish tradition and writings of the New Testament times. In Jeremiah 26, we're told that this Uriah the son of Shemaiah was chased and put to the sword by King Jehoiakim. In 1 Kings 18 and 19, we're told of the various prophets put to the sword by Jezebel. Of course, Jesus reminds us of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, who was stoned between the altar and the sanctuary in 2 Chronicles 24. It was the last prophet recorded murdered in the Old Testament. In Hebrews 11.37, there's an allusion to in Jew, early, early writings record that the prophet Isaiah was sawn in half. Jeremiah was persecuted, and in an allusion in Hebrews 11, he was eventually stoned. We have in 1 Kings 19 that Elijah was persecuted by Ahab and Jezebel. Early tradition records that the prophet Amos was murdered by the priest of Bethel, by Amaziah, the priest of Bethel. Tradition also records that the prophet Micah was murdered by King Jehoram and that Ezekiel was martyred in Babylon. How many prophets were persecuted? How many of them were murdered? A lot. Many others may seem redundant and unnecessary in this text, but it serves to amplify the outrageousness of the tenant's behavior. What some scholars have criticized as absurd and unrealistic what responsible owner would keep sending servants like lambs to the slaughter, is in reality the inconceivable, amazing grace of God. Like the man in Isaiah 5-4, what more could the owner have done? And that's the point. What more could the owner have done to collect his due? we see the supreme patience of God through his many warnings to repent. There wasn't just one or two. The list I have here has at least nine. And there are many more than that. We might expect at this point to see judgment rain down. And quite frankly, we would likely have expected this to have occurred a while ago. But instead, we see something quite different occur in the text. We see a transition in the text from the man as owner to the man as father. As a last attempt to resume a right covenantal relationship with the tenants, he sends someone with whom he has an intimate connection his only beloved son. This phraseology in Mark chapter 12 should immediately remind us that Jesus was called the beloved son in Mark 111 
at his baptism and again at nine, in 9-7 at his transfiguration. It would also have reminded the listeners of Jesus' day of Isaac being referred to as your son, your only son, whom you love. Such was the desire of the man to have a covenantal relationship with his tenants that in spite of the demonstrated violence of the tenants, he did not spare his own son. What some critics have criticized as the absurdity of the owner's and tenant's behavior is only exceeded by the absurdity of God's and Israel's behavior in real life. And here it is. We see God's patience demonstrated through the Father's grace and mercy in our rebellion. However, instead of respecting the Son as heir, they saw an opportunity to murder the Son. Believing that the Father had died and thus seizing the land for themselves through possession. And here is the most damning part of their treachery. It was not through their failure to recognize the son that they killed him. That would have been pardonable as it had been thus far with the servants. It was precisely because they recognized him for who he was. In essence, they said, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and the inheritance will be ours. They rejected the claims of Jesus, not because they misunderstood him, but because they understood him all too well, in spite of their protestations to the contrary. The tenants had an opportunity presented to them, as the psalmist said in Psalm 2.12, to kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Rather than kissing the son and recognizing that they held the vineyard in trust on behalf of and in submission to another, that they had no right to the land. They viewed the land as their own possession, and they wanted to drink the wine that was rightfully the owner's. So they murdered the son. They utterly humiliated him and dishonored him, throwing him outside the vineyard without a proper burial. Not giving someone a decent burial was shameful enough, but giving the son no burial at all heightens the tenant's evil and shamelessness. And so we see, we see God's punishment in his judgment on those who reject the son. At this point, we might find ourselves asking, so what now? Certainly, this would have been the question being asked by Jesus' audience. In fact, Jesus himself poses this as a rhetorical question in verse 9. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. And this is the first part of the punishment, the judgment, the Father's judgment on those who reject the Son. The question that Jesus asks in verse 3 echoes the question that the man asked in Isaiah 5.3, where he says, And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there for me to do for my vineyard than that I have not done in it? When I looked to it to yield grapes, 
Why did it yield wild grapes? Did everything. Should be noted here in the text in Mark that thus far the owner has been referred to simply as a man. But here he is referred to as owner, specifically kurios in Greek. While this can be translated as Lord, Master, or Owner, it should be understood to be the Lord. The reason for this is it echoes the transition in Isaiah chapter 5 from the owner of the vineyard being referred to as Beloved to being referred to as Lord of hosts. And here the allegory gives way to reality. When the Lord of hosts shows up, He is not showing up to ask. He is coming to execute judgment on those who defy him. He has tried to collect. He has repeatedly been patient and shown mercy, even when his prophets were murdered. When they killed his own son, what else was left? Once they showed their utter contempt for the son and thus the owner on a personal level, what else was left for them but destruction? Now, some have used this text as pointing, to God's, as pointing to God's promises of Israel passing to the church, and that is misguided. Because in the allegory, the vineyard is Israel and the tenants are the leaders. We're told this. But the vineyard escapes destruction in this allegory. The vineyard is not destroyed. The leaders do not escape destruction. In Luke's telling, The chief priests, the scribes, and the elders perceive the parable maybe about Israel, and they respond, surely not. Surely God would not reject his people forever and give their land to somebody else. And we know that's not true because God repeatedly says about renewing the covenant, he will remember the covenant. He is the Lord. He is the covenant-keeping God. Jesus quickly dispels that belief, although probably not reassuringly in verses 10 and 11. God has not rejected his covenant. He has just rejected the leaders. In essence, Jesus is telling them, I don't have a problem with everyone, just you. God will keep his promise because he is a covenant-keeping God. But the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders will have no place in it. Who are the others? Some have suggested the church, the Gentiles, or Jesus and the apostles. The structure of the parable most naturally points to Jesus and the apostles since the church and consequently the Gentiles are not really in view at this point. Additionally, Jesus had already pointed to Peter upon his confession of Jesus as Messiah in Matthew 16, 18. And I tell you, Peter, and I tell you, and I tell you, you are Peter and on this rock I will build my church. The disciples, namely Peter, had already been declared a rock that will be part of a new building. But it needs to be remembered, the vineyard did not cease to exist. There is a future for Israel, if not her leaders, promised in Jesus' proclamation of judgment. And here we see the second part of God's punishment in his vindication and glorification of the Son. The failure of the priests will be made undeniable in the vindication of Jesus. 
Jesus, in his further judgment on the leaders of Israel, quotes Psalm 118. The irony of, clo- of quoting 118 is that this is the final psalm in the great Hallel, the great doxological hymns to God, the series of six psalms from 113 to 118 that were sung at the Passover, culminating in Psalm 118, which even at the time of Jesus was widely recognized as one of the messianic psalms. And it was the last psalm that Jesus and his disciples would have sung together in Matthew 26:30 at the Passover before he left for Gethsemane and the long walk to Calvary. Jesus asks the chief priests and the scribes and the elders if they have read the scripture. Haven't you read? Sh- means you have surely read, but obviously do not understand. He then proceeds to quote Psalm 118, 22, and 23. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. The builders were supposed to be knowledgeable and wise, those who had been entrusted with an important task, hewing the stones to fit, Remember where the great Sanhedrin met, the hall of hewn stones. There's even some record that the members of the Sanhedrin were referred to in the day as the builders. The builders were responsible for cutting each stone and shaping each stone to fit it. The builders were supposed to take great care to inspect each stone for imperfections and weaknesses that would render it useless for building. Stones that did not pass muster were rejected and destroyed. The stone that was adjudged as defective and rejected rather than being destroyed was made the cornerstone of a new building. And this was the Lord's doing. The whole thing, the builder's rejection of the stone and the stone being made the cornerstone, this was all part of God's divine plan of redemption. The context of this psalm is covenant. What does not come through well is that the psalm uses the covenant name of God. The emphasis here is that God is a covenant-keeping God to his people even in the face of his trustees' rejection. The builders were entrusted to build a building with the stones they were provided, and all the stones are provided by God. The builders rejected the stone. Rather than God rejecting the covenant he made, he used the stone that the builders rejected as the cornerstone of a new building which he committed to build in his covenant. Implicit in the builder's rejection and God's subsequent utilization is not that God made an imperfect stone perfect for his use. Rather, the builders failed to do their job in recognizing the stone for what it was, perfect for the purpose for which it was intended. The stone that the builders rejected had become the cornerstone, and this is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Another aspect of the psalm that Jesus quotes is that in the Hebrew text, after he is recounted with the owner sending his son, there's a wordplay that doesn't really always, that doesn't well come out. And that the, st- the words for stone and son sound very similar and are used as a wordplay. And it was a well-recognized wordplay that gives the understanding that 118 is messianic in nature. 
by quoting 118 in the temple, Jesus is claiming to be the new cornerstone of the eschatological temple, leading his people out of exile of sin and death. Despite his rejection, God will raise him up to be the cornerstone of the new temple. And it is the Lord who is guiding the events of the passion of the Messiah and will bring about his vindication. They had indeed read this scripture, but they had not accepted what it taught. They were deceived, as Jesus would later say in this chapter. Even so, without their acknowledgement, they were doing the will of God. And this was marvelous to behold. The evil of the religious leaders in conjunction with Pontius Pilate were in fact according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God culminating in the marvelous vindication of his son at the resurrection. Now the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders were not stupid. They knew that Jesus was talking about them. As we see in verse 12, and here is the thematic counter to what Jesus was talking about in Mark 4 when, where, he tells, where Jesus tells the disciples that the parables are so that those opposed to the kingdom may see yet not perceive. Yet here, their eyes are briefly opened so that they recognize themselves in the parable. But their eyes were not opened to the kingdom, but to judgment. However, their response was to seek to arrest him, but stopping because they feared man more than God, thus fulfilling the prophecy that Jesus would be rejected. Their plot to murder him exposed rather than repent, their hearts were hardened. They refused to acknowledge that Jesus was sent from God. In chapter 11, Jesus answered their question. It seems that he answered their question with a question, but as Ken discussed last week, John the Baptist and Jesus came as a package deal. If they accepted John as a prophet sent from heaven, they would have to accept Jesus as the Son of Man, since John proclaimed him to be so. In spite of John's proclamation, in spite of the signs, the healings, and teaching, they still rejected Jesus with the Messiah. It should be no surprise to us at this point that even in spite of Jesus speaking to them in a parable, using the words of a prophet that they had killed, they would double down and conclude that rather than repentance, murder is what was required. We see a certain fullness of the psalmist's words and that the rejection by the builders is certainly in Jesus' view and that this, is, and that this, is, this hardening is the Lord's doing for his glory and it is marvelous. As Christians, it is tempting to look at this passage and want to skip it because it doesn't feel good. Rather than speaking love, Jesus is spitting fire. What are we to make of this? I believe there are three things for the, Christians, for the Christian to take from this. First, God demands fruit and that his fruit be put to his service. The life of the Christian is to be fruitful, not might, will. God tells us what the fruit should look like. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. These are things that are possible only through the substitutionary atoning work of Christ on the cross. Apart from that work of Christ, Paul tells us that our fruit is sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. 
but in Christ we are new creations, created in Christ Jesus for good works. We have been given a new nature with the expectation that we will bring glory and honor to God with it. Secondly, we can take great solace in God's great, long-suffering mercy with us. We are products of his great mercy. Peter tells us that the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. The fullness of the mercy of God came in his son, Jesus, and his death on the cross and resurrection so that we would not bear the penalty for our sin. The incomprehensible mercy of God seems like foolishness to the lost, but to those whose eyes have been opened to the depths of their own depravity, it is a soothing balm to the soul. Third, we can rest assured that because the Father vindicated his Son at the resurrection and will vindicate him fully at the second coming, that we as heirs with him will also be vindicated. Paul writes this in Romans 8.16, that the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. And Paul tells us again in 2 Timothy that the vindication that we, will, that we will receive is this. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. On that day, death will be dead. Those who opposed him will be vanquished, and we will reign with him forever.